time that the ultimate, you know, sort of biblical question of Christian theology is, who do you say that I am? You know, that was Jesus' question to the disciples. That was Jesus' question to those around him. Who do you say that I am? And all else really points us to that. And that Christian theology isn't just a mental, um, intellectual pursuit, but it is a guiding truth for our life together. And uh, so we, we, we take this in in order to pursue how then shall we live. Um, we uh, talked a little last time about there's Christian basics and then there's Protestant Reformation uh, basics. This is what unites the, the church at, um, as a whole. Uh, all Christian churches from Eastern Orthodox to Roman Catholics to Protestant churches um, and uh, all in between. Uh, we hold to the mystery of the Trinity. Uh, God is one yet uh, in three persons. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit and the incarnation of the eternal Word of God in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is God in the flesh. Uh, the ultimate ex- revelation of God um, to us. Um, and because of the Trinity, what Jesus does, God does. What Jesus says, God says. Um, who Jesus is is who God is. Um, and we can know that and be continually have our eyes open to that revelation through the Holy Spirit um, at work through us, but we'll talk a little more about that later. And, and then when you get into the Protestant um, Reformation uh, that uh, um, occurred again in the 1500s. Um, what uh, really developed from that was justification by grace through faith that we talked about a lot last time. Justification is we're made right with God and we're made right with God by God's gift, by His work, not anything. We don't bring anything to the table. We simply receive that gift through faith. So we are made right by God's gift through Jesus that we receive in faith. Our, our, our trust, our belief and trust in Him. And then the other is that Scripture is the final authority for salvation and the life of faith. It is our ultimate authority. And that's where we'll pick up some today. Um, to, to finish that up. Scripture is the final authority for salvation and the life of faith. Now, <clears throat> these are three words that we hear a lot around Scripture, and we've even had asked, what's the difference between inerrancy, infallibility, and authority? Now, as uh, Russell uh, Smith, uh, who is uh, no relation but fellow Presbyterian minister down at Covenant First, um, we were even talking about this recently, he goes, you know, you start getting into this, this is deep soup. Uh, this, is, this is just deep soup uh, for us. So, but the, it's, uh, somebody asked, and it is significant questions as we uh, address um, the, the scriptures. Uh, important um, for us to explore these, and there'll be one other fancy word that we'll look at around the, the scriptures. But inerrancy is that what the Bible says is true. It contains no errors. That's what inerrancy means. There's, there's no errors um, in it as, as a word. Now, um, in terms of inerrancy, in terms of the official uh, doctrine, uh, there's such a thing. A bunch of folks got together in the 70s, one of whom was uh, a former associate pastor here, R.C. Sproul, um, in the 70s at the Chicago Con- Consortium on Biblical Inerrancy. And they came out with about six pages on what 
biblical. And if you want to go Google Chicago and inerrancy and read those six pages, you, you go right ahead. But I figured you, it wasn't that high on your list um, as, as a whole. But it was, what they wanted to state was that inerrancy, in, in its particular doctrinal understanding, is that the scriptures in their original autographs are inerrant. Uh, that inerrancy is a doctrine that affects these. This is the New Testament, and this is the Old Testament. And, and if you go to read it, what you'll see, the New Testament is not in English. It's, it was written in Greek. And, and we don't have the original Documents. Now, we, the, the New Testament are the most well-tested document in ancient literature by a factor of a hundred. You, know, you got two or three of some of the philosopher copies of some of the philosopher's works in the second and the third century that have been um, carried for the last 2,000 years. We have thousands of manuscripts that demonstrate the pathway of the development of Scripture um, as it was copied from the originals. The oldest piece we have, we have a little papyrus um, piece of the New Testament, of the Gospel of John. It's probably dated around the, the last part of the first century, first part of the second century. Um, but then you have copies that have been made throughout the years, but thousands of them. And, and the, the Old Testament, of course, is in Hebrew and Aramaic. It even starts in the back, or, well, in Hebrew, in the front. Um, and then it goes through Hebrew. I mean, this is what... Uh, the Old Testament is in Hebrew and Aramaic. And so the doctrine of inerrancy <coughs> particularly covers the originals and not particularly what we have in English translations. Um, if you go to the source of the Chicago um, document. But that's what it says, that because the Scriptures were inspired by God through the Holy Spirit, so leading the writers and the editors of the, the Scriptures, that what we have in their original autographs, they were without error um, because they came from um, the Spirit through them. Yes, less. Yes, yet, yet there are, and the, the, one of the greatest findings, the question was, does the Old Testament go back further? And one of the greatest findings was the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that actually is one of the only documents that has copies of the Old Testament in it that predate the birth of Jesus. And that's why it was such a significant finding, is that you know, people were saying, well, you know, we got Old Testament prophecies that point to Jesus, but they were all written after Jesus was born. And but then to find the Dead Sea Scrolls and to find how um, it was so congruent with the copies we had today uh, was uh, huge. Um, the other thing that, that helps in terms of having all the manuscripts is you know, that there's uh, uh, you'll hear a number of folks say, well, you know, the Bible's just been changed as it's been going from year to year and over as it's been copied. And the the New Testament or the Christian Church is like, you know, here are the copies. You know, go look, and you'll see there really hasn't been any change. And anything that have been changes, we have them outlined. You even have a few things like in John chapter 8 in your, in your Bible, in the end of the Gospel of Mark, 
Those are all both very questionable uh, um, documents as part of the, uh, as you look, at, uh, look back at the Greek, and most of your Bibles will have little footnotes um, talking uh, about that. We're wide open to say, listen, this has come through 2,000 years, and um, we're sure that this, what we have right now, it communicates what we need um, from God because God has even superintended the um, process of bringing us the scriptures. Now, that brings us to the infallibility. Now, that word is used more often for scriptures today, um, that the Bible is trustworthy. It accomplishes God's purposes for us. And that one, we'll see, is used in our history and in our documents. documents. And then the final one is authority. Um, what the Bible teaches, we must apply in our lives. Um, and you can see, let's talk about inerrancy and infallibility. Because talking about authority, that starts going from preaching to meddling. Um, and so for my purposes, um, I'm glad with anybody that will say the Bible's my authority. If you're going to say what it says I'm going to do, what it says I'm going to pursue, I'm great with that. Matter of fact, I'm better with that than I am with somebody who says the Bible is inerrant, but I'm not going to do what it says. And so my, our focus and the focus in our history has been that the Bible is our authority and our ultimate uh, authority. The Bible is the law too. It, it does contain uh, law. Now, it all, we talk a lot about the Bible in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And uh, this is, uh, again, just to get to the basics of our history of what we have affirmed through the years in, in terms of the, the Scriptures. If you have, have that in front of you, it's not the easiest read in the world. I mean, it was written uh, a while ago. Um, and, uh, and, and the choice has been made to try to keep it in this uh, translation just to capture um, its uh, writing for that age and to try to update it. Um, would be a significant um, undertaking. Um, but as you, you can see, that what's also important is to see that the Westminster Confession of Faith starts with the Scripture. It, it starts there. Most of the other confessions start with God. But Westminster starts with um, the uh, understanding of the Scripture to, to speak to that at first. And the, the first paragraph, uh, you can look, it basically talks about natural revelation and then biblical revelation, that God is revealing himself to us uh, throughout time. He's, he's showing us himself through creation, through what he has made uh, naturally, but he focuses his attention in revealing himself to us through the scriptures. Uh, you see in number two there that it is the, the word of God um, written. It's the, the revelation of God, how God shows himself to us. Without God choosing to reveal himself to us, we would be lost. There's no way we could know God just by knowing creation and then depending on our own uh, abilities and intelligence. It's God's gift even to reveal himself to us. Uh, so uh, we see God revealing himself to us. Then number two, the scripture is the, the word of God written, which is a common phrase that we hear as well in our history, uh, versus the word of God living, which is Jesus. 
Jesus is the word of God um, living. And then um, you'll see on the, the next page, number four, paragraph four there, is the authority of the scripture, which is to be believed and obeyed. It's not dependent upon testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God. And then the, the next page, it is the infallible truth and divine authority that is true of the scriptures apart from us knowing it, but is not meaningful to us until the inward work of the Holy Spirit that bears witness by and with the word in our hearts. And that's a crucial understanding of the Presbyterian understanding of the word, that it is not just a, a mental act of reading and understanding. It is the work of the Spirit who enables our mind to understand what God is teaching us and then enables us to then pursue obeying it. Scott. Well said. I could have just said that, and that would have been a lot quicker. <laughs> Proof does not equal persuasion. I like that, and uh, and that's true. Uh, very true. I mean, we I've got friends who, yeah, that Bible's beautiful. It's great, you know, and you can take it. Um, it is then the authority and infallible truth, and then number six, it is all that is necessary for the life of faith and for the work of the church in knowing um, can is either set down clearly or may be deduced from the, the Scripture. Now, this, is, this is really uh, interesting. Even here, I mean, it gets into some of the, the realities of the Scripture. Everything that we need that is crucial for us as followers of Jesus and to be the church is in the Scriptures. Uh, yet, in the middle of uh, uh, point six there, nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. So that, in other words, there are some things that the Bible doesn't talk about in, in, in uh, specifics. But we apply what we learn theologically. We extrapolate from it to our own situation today. Um, it, it doesn't speak particularly to a lot of things that impact us today. But we take from it the basic truths, the theological truths, and apply them in our day. Um, again, the inspiration of the originals and the transmission, which I talked about a little bit, is in point eight. 
that they, those um, originals in Hebrew and Greek were immediately inspired by God in point eight there. And yet God's superintending even the process of bringing them to us today and the importance of translating them into English. It might be a good time here to speak to the distinctions between, for example, what uh, Muslims hold to the Quran and what Christians hold to the Bible. Um, on the one hand, the, the Quran is held with higher esteem by Muslims than Christians hold the Bible. Because the Quran is equal to Jesus. The Quran is the revelation of God. It is the living word. That's why it's not translated. That's why you have to, that everyone who's Muslim has to learn Arabic in order to read the Quran. You don't translate it and you'll get in trouble in a lot of places for translating the Quran into English. It's, it's like Jesus Whereas the, the Bible is the word of God written that is the ultimate witness to Jesus. That speaks to us of, of who Jesus is from the beginning of time to the end of time and what it means to, to follow him. But we understand, and we'll see this a little bit later, about how the, the scriptures then are to be translated in different languages, which is why we have mission workers now. Some of the folks that we support in other parts of the world are busy translating the Bible into the, the mother tongues, just like um, was, was occurred at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 for people, all peoples uh, around um, the world. And this... Part tells that's why we do that in order to, to translate God's word so that everyone can hear it. All right, and then the, the last, this is if you look, uh, last page there is the, the confession of 67. No, I, I did not give you that. I did not give you the, that Chicago view of inerrancy. This is different. This, the Confession of 67 was written by the, uh, a committee of the Presbyterian Church, went through about five years of uh, writings, rewritings being approved and uh, uh, then affirmed by the Presbyterian Church in 1967. And, uh, and then this is its section on the Bible. And I just want to highlight the third paragraph. And this is uh, one that can be a, a troubling word. Um, for some. And the Bible is to be interpreted in light of its witness to God's work of reconciliation in Christ. The scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are nevertheless the words of men conditioned by the language, thought forms, and literary fashion of the places and times at which they were written. They reflect views of life, history, and the cosmos which were then current. The church therefore has an obligation to approach the scriptures with literary and historical understanding as God has spoken his word in diverse cultural situations. The church is confident that he will continue to speak through the scriptures in a changing world and in every form of human culture. Now, again, that means that we do the hard work of understanding the, the history and the situation in which the scriptures were written so that we can understand what they were um, uh, addressing in that day and then by the power of the Spirit apply it in our day. The, uh, and that is called, this is my other um, big word, biblical hermeneutics. The task of interpreting what the Bible means. 
And that's what the Confession of 67 is, uh, is talking about. And it also is why, as Presbyterians, we do affirm that the, the need for education uh, for those that will study and understand the Scriptures because of how they were written in different days, in different cultures, different languages. Here's an example of how we all interpret the Bible according to what it means. As I read this chat, as I read this verse, I want you to think about what part do you take literally and what part do you understand as communicating something beyond just what the exact words say. This is Paul writing to Timothy. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold, per- gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Now you can see there, you read that, and there's probably nobody here who takes every word particularly literally. Otherwise, if you did, then if you were a man, then you'd have to pray like this. You have to lift up your holy hands. We, we do the work of, interpret, of interpreting what the Scriptures say. You know, we do the same thing with the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. We, we understand through the work of biblical interpretation there are different metaphors that are used. There, there, there are different linguistic styles, li, li, linguistic tools that we use like Exaggeration. We also understand, like in this, in this text, that there were culturally in that day, it was inappropriate to wear gold, pearls, expensive clothes, or have your hair braided. What was often the case in Paul's day then was that was how prostitutes dressed. They didn't dress like them. Or that those were overly ostentatious. Um, to do that. Now, certainly we'd agree that, that in every place men should pray, and we certainly agree that, that women should profess the reverence for God, and men, women should pray, and men should also profess reverence for God. I mean, in a sense, what Paul was doing was saying both of those things in a way that was culturally relevant for men and women in his day. That in a sense, men and women reverence God together. And this is how it was culturally appropriate in that day. Now, uh, 11, I'm sure you're wondering, well, what about 11 through 15? Well, <clears throat> there's a really crucial thing here. One, the most radical thing that Paul says in this passage is verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with, whoa, women don't learn. They're not supposed to learn. They didn't learn in the first century. They 
were taking care of kids, working in the kitchen, all the rest. This is a radical statement that Paul is making here in verse 11 to let women learn. And what's happened, if you look at the full of, of, of Timothy, you see there are some women who have fully experienced their freedom in Christ and have taken it to a way that was disrupted. And uh, you read the end of uh, Timothy, uh, Paul addresses them particularly, and he says, now, right now, don't, don't go and start teaching uh, men right now. You need to learn. 13 through and 14 is then an Old Testament illustration of uh, a man who'd been around for a while, who'd heard all the details and all the rules, and a woman who was a little newer on the scene and who hadn't. She had not yet been taught what was right and wrong. She didn't have the experience. Eve didn't have the experience that Adam did. And so what Paul is saying here, uh, women, you haven't been able to be be taught lately, uh, but now in Christ you can be, so teach. Uh, But don't take that freedom to where you're disruptive to others. You go ahead. You learn now. Just like Eve should have waited and learned from Adam. Just like Adam should have taught Eve so that then they could live together in full equality with one another, but they didn't. And then verse 15 is, you'll be saved through childbearing, is that sense of it, that focus your attention on those particular needs that you need to focus on, continue in faith, love, holiness, with modesty, and this isn't said, but in time, then you will learn and be qualified to teach. But you can see, to understand that particular passage, take some biblical hermeneutics and take some work of saying, hmm, there's a lot of stuff in there that I'm not quite sure about. Which gives us another guideline for biblical hermeneutics is we let the clear scriptures focus us, teach us, lead us for those scriptures that are unclear. Those that we know clearly, they inform us of what is unclear. It's sort of like um, uh, eating fried chicken. As I've I've mentioned before, you read the Bible like you eat fried chicken or you eat watermelon. The stuff you can eat that's good, you eat it. And it's good. And you you go with that. And you put the other stuff to the side. And like with watermelon, uh, you got to put some of it, you can put it in uh, brine and then you pickle the watermelon rind. It takes a little time before you can eat that. Uh, The same thing is true with the Scripture. There's some part that comes off, it's just sweet and good and juicy. And there's other parts, you got to pickle it for a while before you'll be able to grasp it. But again, that's, that's Reformed biblical hermeneutics. That we, we value it, we understand it, but we recognize how God brought that to be in a historical situation. We understand the historical situation, so we understand how it applies today. Barbara, do you have a question? Uh, good. Uh, that is... Uh, some that say maybe he's talking about Mary and that Mary gave birth to the Savior and that's what he's talking about after talking about Adam and Eve. The she is talking about Eve in a metaphorical sense, archetypal sense. 
which is possible, which was also a more common story in the first century. We don't really think about that today. No, but very good. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, that, that, and that's exactly the case, um, which is why it was, in, I think, important to go through those first ones. First, what are the Christian essentials? What are the Protestant Reformation essentials in terms of the Trinity, the Incarnation, um, the uh, salvation by grace through faith, and then the Scripture as our authority? And it's important, though, to recognize what biblical hermeneutics are and why we do disagree on some of those other um, issues. Because um, you could read verse 215. If you just take it out of context, you're like, so women go to heaven because they have children. I mean, that's how you could read it. And, and, but we know from clearer scriptures and a number of situations, no, we're saved by grace through faith. And it's not by what... Um, we we do that we add anything to that. So there's got to be something else that Paul's getting to here because that we understand the scriptures um, in a sense to be in, infallible there and in a sense the, um, that they uh, interpret themselves. So we take that under what we know to be much more common um, in scriptures. That's why the clear helps to inform um, the unclear. And you'll see that as well even in the Westminster document. Uh, they, they talk about that. And they even talk about different interpretations. And there, as we, we read, there are certain things that, that the Scriptures aren't clear about that we use the, the light of nature, our common wisdom today, and uh, to distinguish like worship styles and church government and things like that that do lead to different denominations. Scott. Right. No, very good. Yeah, that's an um, excellent example. Now, so those are the Christian basics. Those are the Protestant Reformation basics. And uh, quickly, some of the things that are the Reformed basics um, that follow after the, uh, the, which get to, Bonnie, what you were saying. All right, well, here, what are some of the ways that we particularly interpret scriptures? What, what does that tease out? Well, one is the sovereignty of God. Um, the other, oh, I'll come back to these, but just so you get them in, in whole, the priesthood of all believers, 
um, that all truth is God's truth, all space is God's space, and then reformed and always reforming according to the Word of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit. The sovereignty of God. We're not going to uh, go and look all of these up, but um, you you can. Um, uh, later, uh, Psalm 104, Romans 9, and Revelation 21 all speak to the fact that God is supreme, that God begins it, God sustains it, and God ends it, that all starts with God, all continues with God, and all ends um, with God. And that he is the sovereign ruler of all. Um, I'll read a little from Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, wrapped in light as with a garment. You stretch out the heavens like a tent. You set the beams of your chambers on the waters. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride on the wings of the wind. I mean, obviously, these are not literal I mean, this is poem. This is poetry. Yeah, it, what, what it's communicating, what we understand, is clear of God's sovereignty and his majesty, but it's in the poetry of that day um, that we grasp this. You make the winds your messengers, fire and flame your ministers. You set the earth on its foundation so that it shall never be shaken. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they flee. At the sound of your thunder they take to flight. They rose up to the mountains, ran down to the valleys, to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills, giving drink to every wild animal. The wild asses quench their thirst. By the streams the birds of the air have their habitation. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for people to make the face shine and bread to strengthen the human heart. And on it goes. So just know this. Every time you cut your grass with a bad attitude, huh? God's the one that causes the grass to grow. So, but it's not not one that he just sets it in place and he's going to catch it at the end. God sustains it throughout. Every blade of grass, God causes um, to grow. From our book of order, we affirm the majesty, holiness, and providence of God who in Christ and by the power of the Spirit creates, sustains, rules, and redeems the world in the freedom of sovereign righteousness and love. What that does mean for us in our history, the the sovereignty of God is, um, oh, and it is the the fifth only. You know, we said uh, that uh, of the Reformation, it's only uh, Scripture, only Christ, only faith, um, only grace, and then only for God's glory. Um, Glory to God uh, alone. And, and one of the ways that, that demonstrates itself is in our understanding of salvation. That salvation starts with God, not with us. 
And this, this becomes one of the great battles between Calvinists and Arminians that continues on today and that we all eventually sort of say, you know, I get this, I understand it to a point. I can't quite put it all into words. It's a mystery, but it is some way that uh, God and, and human decision match together. And some in the Arminian camp, they lean towards human decision for salvation. In the Reformed camp, we lean toward God's sovereignty. That, yes, it's certainly scriptural, and we always go back to scripture. There are cases in scripture of, of faith decision um, for whosoever believed. You know, that there's faith decision. But first and foremost, we uphold that it is God's gift of salvation. It is God's work, and therefore we get no credit even in the faith response. It is God's work and God's sovereignty. And that's where we lean in uh, on the tension in scriptures between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I know that's not a very satisfying answer, but too bad. <laughs> the, uh, the priesthood of all believers is one. And again, Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 12, you know, the body of Christ. Uh, uh, we all are, are members of that body. Acts chapter 2, if you remember at Pentecost, the, the Spirit came down upon each one. Little tongues of fire came down upon each one. There were not some that were higher level that got bigger flames. Um, or two flames. That it was all who were in Christ were the same. So we all are priests. And this as we're walking through giving the world heaven. There's nobody closer to God than you if you are clothed in Christ. And so you are the one that is, and we are the ones who are the window into heaven for those that don't know. We all are uh, priests um, together. And, and that we are chosen for salvation and service. You hear that a lot in um, Reformed um, doctrine. That understanding of God setting aside His people for the purpose of saving them and sending them out in service. Um, that, that's why Dwight Moody was not a Presbyterian. And Moody had that famous quote, you know, The earth is falling apart. God's given me a lifeboat. I'm just trying to get as many as I can in the lifeboat. And that was his metaphor for ministry. And he was an evangelist and he was a really good one. But that is not Presbyterian Reformed understanding of our existence. That the world is, is, is to be forgotten, just left, just don't worry about it. It's a sinking ship. Just get anybody you can in the lifeboat. We are chosen for salvation and for service, which also will lead us to all truth is God's truth, all space is God's space. That's why in a Presbyterian church we don't have an altar. We have a table, a communion table. Um, but uh, the, the, the altar, in a sense, from Romans 12, is wherever we who are following Jesus place our feet. Because, as Paul says in Romans 12, you are a living sacrifice. Now, don't be conformed to this world. It will be transformed. Where, wherever we set our feet, if we are living sacrifices unto God, wherever we set our feet is an altar. It's a holy place because God's Spirit fills us and we are seeking to follow Him wherever we are. And any truth we learn in any discipline um, is, is from God. 
because of creation. I mean, anything that is, is created. Anything that is, is, is good, we're told. You know, so all truth is God's truth. All space is God's space. And then the final one is uh, reformed and always reforming according to the word of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the catchphrases of the, the Presbyterian church. It's, it was the essence of the Reformation. And you, you catch that as you read through Westminster, that we're always going back to the Scriptures. We, we, we recognize that we never get it totally, 100%, all the way right. So we're always going back to the Scriptures. We're always being reformed by them, coming back to them over and over again, trusting in the Spirit to lead us to what is God's guidance and mission and focus for us um, today. If there were a bumper sticker for Reformed theology, that would be it, and it says something that it can't really fit on a bumper sticker. <laughs> and uh, what I gave for that was Acts 15 and 2 Corinthians 12, 7. And then finally... Um, the last sheet that you have there is a declaration of faith and life that is from the, the session of um, CHPC. Um, most recently, day, anybody, uh, y'all got some extras uh, over there, Laura? Thank you. Got some, uh, there we go. Everybody got one that wants one? Nope. Need one? Sorry? Don't know what happened on that. I'll have some more um, uh, next time. But this was last affirmed and revised in 1996. um, And uh, it hasn't uh, needed to be changed um, in any way. It has been... um, uh, and, and you can just simply walk uh, through that. Um, you can see um, uh, what the, uh, uh, the preamble um, basically says. You know, th- this is who we are, what we uh, believe and what we focus on. It's, it's not in any way um, uh, to be um, total in its uh, um, breadth. It, it is addressing particular issues that were coming before the church in those days and did a very good job of um, stating that and still affirmed and uh, living for us um, today. Um, You can see the first one, this sort of like Westminster, it starts with Scripture. Um, It also parallels what we haven't looked at, but the Barman Declaration, which is a a modern um, declaration in the 30s, 1930s, in that it has what it affirms and what it denies. And so you can see there, continue to affirm fully in the Reformed tradition, the inspired and infallible Word of God, the only absolute authority for faith and practice. At the bottom of the front there, right under Scripture. Um, and goes on to state what the scriptures uh, we understand the scripture to be and what we deny that its meaning is a matter solely of personal interpretations apart from the words of scripture that any human wisdom or knowledge contrary to the meaning of scripture can be an accurate expression of God's will 
and that scriptures simply contain or become the word of God for individual believers. Um, and actually, this is a, even getting in deeper soup. It's addressing the issues of biblical hermeneutics, actually hermeneutics as a whole. Um, and if there are any uh, English majors, um, you can probably speak to this some. But the whole distinction between what are we looking for when we read a document? Is it about authorial intent? What did the author mean? Or is it about reader's response? What do you get out of it when you read it? Yeah, that's the question this is addressing. And what it's specifically really stating is in biblical hermeneutics, we are about authorial intent. What was the intent meant? What would the, the writer mean? What did he say? What, was it, what were they saying when they were writing this down? What did they mean to say? It's not primarily what I get out of it. Now, that's not a bad thing. That's a, that's a good thing in how we apply it in our lives, but it's to be secondary so as to prevent the scriptures from just being um, a uh, Rorschach-like test. Now, what it is where they you know, put like just some blob and you, you say, well, this is what it looks like to me. Um, I can see that didn't help anybody, really. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, well, um, but... That, uh, that is, is saying, no, it has meaning. There are meaning in the words. Now, that gets into um, really uh, you know, hermeneutics and philosophy of understanding literature and all the rest, um, which uh, I don't really know enough about to even talk about beyond that. So you're welcome. Um, it also goes into Christ and redemption, which is salvation by grace through faith, which we have affirmed and reaffirmed, then uh, addresses the other other issues of the day, as again, like Confession of 67, uh, human sexuality, which continue to be uh, a significant issue for our day, sanctity of human life, then addresses issues of seminaries and seminarians, the ordination of women, and the importance of church discipline. Now, we will, um, I sent this to you, you can read this and understand it, uh, I don't need to be walking uh, through this, but we will come back to this in um, a couple weeks when we uh, look at particularly the issue of human sexuality from theological, a polity, and a historical um, perspective. But I share this with you to say in our history what we needed to reaffirm in, um, in terms of what uh, we believe and what we believe um, particularly as a church now. Cindy. No. There, there's nobody right now writing a confession. Um, there, there has been an additional confession that was from, um, that was added most recently, just in the last year, the Belhar um, Confession. But that was added. It was written by the church in uh, South Africa. Yes. Correct. Right. Yeah. The the confessing church movement largely captured this this document um, here, but that was in a sense would have restated that in the early two thousands. 
Thank you, Elena. All right, next um, week we'll then move into the polity. All right, how do then we organize ourselves? Yes, Maggie. Uh-huh. Um, uh, well, that particular area is uh, a crucial one. Um, in uh, Reformed history, uh, we've always had a book of discipline that is there in order to um, bring folks back into the faith um, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, whatever particular issue of sin. And, and I think, um, I'm not exactly sure what was behind this one exactly. Um, and I, I think as well, we understand church discipline even broader, not so much as just a, um, a, a bringing folks back to the faith, but also understanding our responsibility and charge to nurture one another, sort of preventative medicine in the faith, that that also encompasses what we mean by church discipline. Um, uh, not just, it's not punitive, but it's um, bringing folks back. What word am I looking for there? It's not coming to me. Yeah, exhorting. Oh, sorry. Restoring. Yeah. The, the question was, what, what else does church discipline address? What are the other issues around church discipline? Uh, yes. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Yeah. I'll give it say to cherish and to love one another. Most of it is about children getting a discipline from God Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, and that's part of how we nurture one another, which is part of our the community coming alongside one another and helping each other follow Jesus. All right, well, uh next week we'll jump into polity. Um the week uh, after that, we'll look particularly at sexuality. And then the, the last week is um, we'll catch some of the things that we've missed and we'll be open to questions. Be sure if you have other questions to write them down and uh, we will address them then. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you again for this time to gather. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us, uh, that we would be uh, lost without you. Uh, telling us, communicating with us, showing us who you are in Jesus through your written word. Uh, We uh, give you thanks that that you have made us all priests. We give you thanks that that you are the one sovereign and in control, that you ultimately are responsible for your world and for your church, and we surrender uh, unto your uh, responsibility and seek to follow you. And and God, we ask you will help us to help one another, um, to encourage, to exhort, to challenge, to support one another as we seek to follow you together. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.